Chapter Twenty Eight of the Pickwick Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty Eight. A good-humoured Christmas chapter containing an account of a wedding, and some other sports besides, which, although in their way, even as good customs as marriage itself, are not quite so religiously kept up in these degenerate times. As brisk as bees, if not altogether as light as fairies, did the four Pickwickians assemble on the morning of the twenty-second day of December, in the year of grace in which these their faithfully recorded adventures were undertaken and accomplished christmas was close at hand in all his bluff and hearty honesty it was the season of hospitality merriment and open-heartedness the old year was preparing like an ancient philosopher to call his friends around him and amidst the sound of feasting and revelry to pass gently and calmly away gay and merry was the time and right gay and merry were at least four of the numerous hearts that were gladdened by its coming and numerous indeed are the hearts to which christmas brings a brief season of happiness and enjoyment how many families whose members have been dispersed and scattered far and wide in the restless struggles of life are then reunited and meet once again in that happy state of companionship and mutual goodwill which is a source of such pure and unalloyed delight and one so incompatible with the cares and sorrows of the world that the religious belief of the most civilised nations and the rude traditions of the roughest savages alike number it among the first joys of a future condition of existence provided for the blessed and happy how many old recollections and how many dormant sympathies does Christmas time awake? We write these words now, many miles distant from the spot at which, year after year, we met on that day, a merry and joyous circle. Many of the hearts that throb so gladly then have ceased to beat. Many of the looks that shone so brightly then have ceased to glow. The hands we grasped have grown cold the eyes we sought have hid their lustre in the grave and yet the old house the room the merry voices and smiling faces the jest the laugh the most minute and trivial circumstances connected with those happy meetings crowd upon our mind at each recurrence of the season as if the last assemblage had been but yesterday happy happy christmas that can win us back to the delusions of our childish days, that can recall to the old man the pleasures of his youth, that can transport the sailor and the traveller thousands of miles away back to his own fireside and his quiet home. But we are so taken up and occupied with the good qualities of this St. Christmas that we are keeping Mr. Pickwick and his friends waiting in the cold on the outside of the Muggleton coach, 
which they have just attained, well wrapped up in greatcoats, shawls, and comforters. The portmanteaus and carpet-bags have been stowed away, and Mr. Weller and the guard are endeavouring to insinuate into the foreboot a huge codfish, several sizes too large for it, which is snugly packed up in a long brown basket, with a layer of straw over the top, and which has been left to the last, in order that he may repose in safety on the half-dozen barrels of real native oysters, all the property of Mr. Pickwick, which have been arranged in regular order at the bottom of the receptacle. The interest displayed in Mr. Pickwick's countenance is most intense, as Mr. Weller and the guard try to squeeze the codfish into the boot, first head-first, and then tail-first, and then top-upward, and then bottom-upward, and then sideways, and then longways, all of which artifices the implacable codfish sturdily resists, until the guard accidentally hits him in the very middle of the basket, whereupon he suddenly disappears into the boot, and with him the head and shoulders of the guard himself, who, not calculating upon so sudden a cessation of the passive resistance of the codfish, experiences a very unexpected shock to the unsmotherable delight of all the porters and bystanders. Upon this Mr. Pickwick smiles with great good humour, and, drawing a shilling from his waistcoat pocket, begs the guard, as he picks himself out of the boot, to drink his health in a glass of hot brandy and water, at which the guard smiles too, and Messrs. Snodgrass, Winkle, and Tupman all smile in company. The guard and Mr. Weller disappear for five minutes, most probably to get the hot brandy and water, for they smell very strongly of it when they return. The coachman mounts to the box, Mr. Weller jumps up behind, the Pickwickians pull their coats round their legs and their shawls over their noses, the helpers pull the horse-cloths off, the coachman shouts out a cheery, All right! and away they go. They have rumbled through the streets, and jolted over the stones, and at length reach the wide and open country. The wheels skim over the hard and frosty ground, and the horses, bursting into a canter at a smart crack of the whip, step along the road as if the load behind them, coach, passengers, codfish, oyster-barrels, and all, were but a feather at their heels. They have descended a gentle slope, and enter upon a level as compact and dry as a solid block of marble two miles long. Another crack of the whip, and off they speed at a smart gallop, the horses tossing their heads and rattling the harness, as if in exhilaration at the rapidity of the motion, while the coachman holding whip and reins in one hand takes off his hat with the other, and resting it on his knees, pulls out his handkerchief and wipes his forehead, partly because he has a habit of doing it, and partly because it's as well to show the passengers how cool he is, and what an easy thing it is to drive four in hand when you have had as much practice as he has. Having done this very leisurely, otherwise the effect would be materially impaired, he replaces his handkerchief, pulls on his hat, adjusts his glove, squares his elbows, cracks the whip again, and on they speed more merrily than before. 
A few small houses scattered on either side of the road betoke the entrance to some town or village. The lively notes of the guard's key-bugle vibrate in the clear cold air and wake up the old gentleman inside, who, carefully letting down the window-sash halfway and standing sentry over the air, takes a short peep out, and then, carefully pulling it up again, informs the other inside that they're going to change directly on which the other inside wakes himself up, and determines to postpone his next nap until after the stoppage. Again the bugle sounds lustily forth, and rouses the cottager's wife and children, who peep out at the house-door, and watch the coach till it turns the corner, when they once more crouch round the blazing fire, and throw on another log of wood against father comes home while father himself, a full mile off, has just exchanged a friendly nod with the coachman, and turned round to take a good long stare at the vehicle, as it whirls away. And now the bugle plays a lively air as the coach rattles through the ill-paved streets of a country town, and the coachman, undoing the buckle which keeps his ribbons together, prepares to throw them off the moment he stops. Mr. Pickwick emerges from his coat-collar, and looks about him with great curiosity, perceiving which the coachman informs Mr. Pickwick of the name of the town, and tells him it was market-day yesterday, both of which pieces of information Mr. Pickwick retails to his fellow-passengers. Whereupon they emerge from their coat-collars too, and look about them also. Mr. Winkle, who sits at the extreme edge, with one leg dangling in the air, is nearly precipitated into the street, as the coach twists round the sharp corner by the cheesemonger's shop, and turns into the market-place. And before Mr. Snodgrass, who sits next to him, has recovered from his alarm, they pull up at the inn-yard, where the fresh horses, with cloths on, are already waiting. The coachman throws down the reins and gets down himself, and the other outside passengers drop down also, except those who have no great confidence in their ability to get up again, and they remain where they are, and stamp their feet against the coach to warm them, looking with longing eyes and red noses at the bright fire in the inn bar, and the sprigs of holly with red berries which ornament the window. But the guard has delivered at the corn-dealer's shop the brown paper packet he took out of the little pouch which hangs over his shoulders by a leathern strap, and has seen the horses carefully put to, and has thrown on the pavement the saddle which was brought from London on the coach-roof, and has assisted in the conference between the coachman and the hostler about the grey mare that hurt her offside leg last Tuesday, and he and Mr. Weller are all right behind, and the coachman is all right in front, and the old gentleman inside who has kept the window down full two inches all this time has pulled it up again, and the cloths are off, and they are all ready for starting, except the two stout gentlemen, whom the coachman inquires after with some impatience. Hereupon the coachman and the guard and Sam Weller and Mr. Winkle and Mr. Snodgrass and all the hostlers and every one of the idlers, who are more in number than all the others put together, shout for the missing gentleman as loud as they can bawl. A distant response is heard from the yard, and Mr. Pickwick and Mr. Tupman come running down it, quite out of breath, for they have been having a glass of ale apiece, 
and Mr. Pickwick's fingers are so cold that he has been full five minutes before he could find the sixpence to pay for it. The coachman shouts an admonitory, Now then, gentlemen! The guard re-echoes it. The old gentleman inside thinks it a very extraordinary thing that people will get down when they know there isn't time for it. Mr. Pickwick struggles up on one side, Mr. Tupman on the other, Mr. Winkle cries, All right! and off they start. Shawls are pulled up, coat collars are readjusted, the pavement ceases, the houses disappear, and they are once again dashing along the open road with the fresh clear air blowing in their faces and gladdening their very hearts within them. Such was the progress of Mr. Pickwick and his friends by the Muggleton Telegraph on their way to Dingley Dell, and at three o'clock that afternoon they all stood high and dry, safe and sound, hale and hearty, upon the steps of the Blue Lion, having taken on the road quite enough of ale and brandy to enable them to bid defiance to the frost that was binding up the earth in its iron fetters, and weaving its beautiful network upon the trees and hedges. Mr. Pickwick was busily engaged in counting the barrels of oysters and superintending the disinternment of the codfish when he felt himself gently pulled by the skirts of the coat. Looking round, he discovered that the individual who resorted to this mode of catching his attention was none other than Mr. Wardle's favourite page, better known to the readers of this unvarnished history by the distinguishing appellation of The Fat Boy. Aha! said Mr. Pickwick. Aha! said the fat boy. As he said it, he glanced from the codfish to the oyster barrels and chuckled joyously. He was fatter than ever. Well, you look rosy enough, my young friend, said Mr. Pickwick. I've been asleep, right in front of the tap-room fire replied the fat boy, who had heated himself to the colour of a new chimney-pot in the course of an hour's nap. "'Master sent me over with the shay-cart to carry your luggage up to the house. He'd a sent some saddle-horses, but he thought you'd rather walk being a cold day.' "'Oh, yes, yes,' said Mr. Pickwick hastily for he remembered how they had travelled over nearly the same ground on a previous occasion. Uh, yes, we would rather walk. Here, Sam. Sir? said Mr. Weller. Help Mr. Wardle's servant to put the packages into the cart, and then ride on with him. We will walk forward at once. Having given this direction and settled with the coachman, Mr. Pickwick and his three friends struck into the footpath across the fields and walked briskly away, leaving Mr. Weller and the fat boy confronted together for the first time. Sam looked at the fat boy with great astonishment, but without saying a word, and began to stow the luggage rapidly away in the cart, while the fat boy stood quietly by and seemed to think it a very interesting sort of thing to see Mr. Weller working by himself. "'There,' said Sam, throwing in the last carpet-bag, "'there we are.' "'Yes,' said the fat boy, in a very satisfied tone, "'there they are.' "'Well, young twenty-stun,' said Sam, 
You're a nice specimen of a prize boy, you are. Thankee, said the fat boy. You ain't got nothing on your mind as makes you fret yourself, have you? inquired Sam. Not as I knows on, replied the fat boy. I should rather a thought to look at you that you was a labouring under an unrequited attachment to some young woman, said Sam. The fat boy shook his head. Fell, says Sam. I am glad to hear it. Did you ever drink anything? I likes eating better, replied the boy. Ah, said Sam, I should have supposed that, but what I mean is, should you like a drop of anything as it warm you? But I suppose you never was cold with all them elastic fixtures, was you? Sometimes, replied the boy, and I likes a drop of something when it's good. Oh, you do, do you? said Sam. Come this way, then. The blue lion tap was soon gained, and the fat boy swallowed a glass of liquor without so much as winking, a feat which considerably advanced him in Mr. Weller's good opinion. Mr. Weller, having transacted a similar amount of business on his own account, they got into the cart. "'Can you drive?' said the fat boy. "'I should rather think so,' replied Sam. "'There, then.' said the fat boy, putting the reins in his hand, and pointing up a lane. "'It's as straight as you can go. You can't miss it.' With these words the fat boy laid himself affectionately down by the side of the codfish, and placing an oyster-barrel under his head for a pillow, fell asleep instantaneously. "'Well,' said Sam, "'of all the cool boys I ever set my eyes on, this here young gentleman is the coolest. Come on, wake up, young Dropsy. But as young Dropsy evinced no symptoms of returning animation, Sam Weller sat himself down in front of the cart, and starting the old horse with a jerk of the rein, jogged steadily on towards the manor farm. Meanwhile Mr. Pickwick and his friends, having walked their blood into active circulation, proceeded cheerfully on. The paths were hard, the grass was crisp and frosty, the air had a fine, dry, bracing coldness, and the rapid approach of the grey twilight, slate-coloured is a better term in frosty weather, made them look forward with pleasant anticipation to the comforts which awaited them at their hospitable entertainers. It was the sort of afternoon that might induce a couple of elderly gentlemen in a lonely field to take off their greatcoats and play at leapfrog in pure lightness of heart and gaiety. And we firmly believe that had Mr. Tupman at that moment proffered a back, Mr. Pickwick would have accepted his offer with the utmost avidity. However, Mr. Tupman did not volunteer any such accommodation, and the friends walked on conversing merrily. As they turned into a lane they had to cross, the sound of many voices burst upon their ears, and before they had even had time to form a guest to whom they belonged, they walked into the very centre of a party who were expecting their arrival, a fact which was first noticed to the Pickwickians by the loud hurrah which burst from old Wardle's lips when they appeared in sight. First, there was Wardle himself looking, if that were possible, more jolly than ever. 
Then there were Bella and her faithful Trundle, and lastly there were Emily and some eight or ten young ladies who had all come down to the wedding, which was to take place next day, and who were in as happy and important a state as young ladies usually are on such momentous occasions, and they were all and one startling the fields and lanes far and wide with their frolic and laughter. The ceremony of introduction under such circumstances was very soon performed, or we should rather say that the introduction was soon over without any ceremony at all. In two minutes thereafter, Mr. Pickwick was joking with the young ladies who wouldn't come over the stile while he looked, or who, having pretty feet and unexceptionable ankles, preferred standing on the top rail for five minutes or so, declaring that they were too frightened to move, with as much ease and absence of reserve or constraint as if he had known them for life. It is worthy of remark, too, that Mr. Snodgrass offered Emily far more assistance than the absolute terrors of the stile, although it was full three feet high, and had only a couple of stepping-stones, would seem to require, while one black-eyed young lady in a very nice pair of boots with fur round the top was observed to scream very loudly when Mr. Winkle offered to help her over. All this was very snug and pleasant and when the difficulties of the stile were at last surmounted, and they once more entered on the open field, old Wardle informed Pickwick how they had all been down in a body to inspect the furniture and fittings up of the house which the young couple were to tenant after the Christmas holidays. At which communication Bella and Trundle both coloured up, as red as the fat boy after the tap-room fire and the young lady with the black eyes and the fur round the boots whispered something in Emily's ear, and then glanced archly at Mr. Snodgrass, to which Emily responded that she was a foolish girl, but turned very red notwithstanding. And Mr. Snodgrass, who was as modest as all great geniuses usually are, felt the crimson rising to the crown of his head, and devoutly wished in the innermost recesses of his own heart, that the young lady aforesaid, with her black eyes and her archness, and her boots with the fur round the top, were all comfortably deposited in the adjacent county. But if they were social and happy outside the house, what was the warmth and cordiality of their reception when they reached the farm? The very servants grinned with pleasure at sight of Mr. Pickwick, and Emma bestowed a half-demure, half-impudent, and all-pretty look of recognition on Mr. Tupman, which was enough to make the statue of Bonaparte in the passage unfold his arms and clasp her within them. The old lady was seated with customary state in the front parlour, but she was rather cross, and by consequence most particularly deaf. She never went out herself and like a great many other ladies of the same stamp, she was apt to consider it an act of domestic treason if anybody else took the liberty of doing what she couldn't. So, bless her old soul, she sat as upright as she could in her great chair, and looked as fierce as might be, and that was benevolent after all. "'Mother,' said Wardle, 
Mr. Pickwick, you recollect him? Never mind, replied the old lady with great dignity. Don't trouble Mr. Pickwick about an old creature like me. Nobody cares about me now, and it's very natural they shouldn't. Here the old lady tossed her head and smoothed down her lavender-coloured silk dress with trembling hands. "'Come, come, madam,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'I can't let you cut an old friend in this way. I have come down expressly to have a long talk and another rubber with you, and will show these boys and girls how to dance a minuet before they're eight-and-forty hours older.' The old lady was rapidly giving way, but she did not like to do it all at once, so she only said, "'Arr, I can't hear him!' "'Nonsense, mother!' said Wardle. "'Come, come, don't be cross, there's a good soul. Recollect, Bella, come, you must keep her spirits up, poor girl!' The good old lady heard this, for her lip quivered as her son said it. But age has its little infirmities of temper, and she was not quite brought round yet. So she smoothed down the lavender-coloured dress again, and turning to Mr. Pickwick, said, "'Ah, Mr. Pickwick, young people was very different when I was a girl.' "'No doubt of that, madam,' said Mr. Pickwick, "'and that's the reason why I would make much of the few that have any traces of the old stock.' And saying this, Mr. Pickwick gently pulled Bella towards him, and bestowing a kiss upon her forehead, bade her sit down on the little stool at her grandmother's feet. Whether the expression of her countenance as it was raised towards the old lady's face called up a thought of old times, or whether the old lady was touched by Mr. Pickwick's affectionate good nature, or whatever was the cause, she was fairly melted. So she threw herself upon her granddaughter's neck, and all the little ill-humour evaporated in a gush of silent tears. A happy party they were that night. Sedate and solemn were the score of rubbers in which Mr. Pickwick and the old lady played together. Uproarious was the mirth of the round table. Long after the ladies had retired, did the hot elder wine, well qualified with brandy and spice, go round and round and round again, and sound was the sleep and pleasant were the dreams that followed. It is a remarkable fact that those of Mr. Snodgrass bore constant reference to Emily Wardle, and that the principal figure in Mr. Winkle's visions was a young lady with black eyes and arch smile, and a pair of remarkably nice boots with fur round the tops. Mr. Pickwick was awakened early in the morning by a hum of voices and a pattering of feet, sufficient to rouse even the fat boy from his heavy slumbers. He sat up in bed and listened. The female servants and female visitors were running constantly to and fro, and there were such multitudinous demands for hot water, such repeated outcries for needles and thread, and so many half-suppressed entreaties of "'Oh, do come and tie me, there's a dear!' that Mr. Pickwick, in his innocence, began to imagine that something dreadful must have occurred, when he grew more awake and remembered the wedding. 
the occasion being an important one, he dressed himself with peculiar care and descended to the breakfast-room. There were the female servants in a brand-new uniform of pink muslin gowns with white bows in their caps, running about the house in a state of excitement and agitation which would be impossible to describe. The old lady was dressed out in a brocaded gown which had not seen the light for twenty years, saving and excepting such truant rays as had stolen through the chinks in the box in which it had been laid by during the whole time. Mr. Trundle was in high feather and spirits, but a little nervous withal. The hearty old landlord was trying to look very cheerful and unconcerned, but failing signally in the attempt. All the girls were in tears and white muslin, except a select two or three who were being honoured with a private view of the bride and bridesmaid upstairs. All the Pickwickians were in most blooming array, and there was a terrific roaring on the grass in front of the house, occasioned by all the men, boys, and hobbledehoys attached to the farm, each of whom had got a white bow in his buttonhole, and all of whom were cheering with might and main, being incited thereto and stimulated therein by the precept and example of Mr. Samuel Weller, who had managed to become mighty popular already, and was as much at home as if he had been born on the land. A wedding is a licensed subject to joke upon, but there really is no great joke in the matter after all. We speak merely of the ceremony, and beg it to be distinctly understood that we indulge in no hidden sarcasm upon a married life. Mixed up with the pleasure and joy of the occasion, there are many regrets at quitting home, the tears of parting between parent and child, consciousness of leaving the dearest and kindest friends of the happiest portion of human life to encounter its cares and troubles with others still untried and little known natural feelings which we would not render this chapful mournful by describing, and which we should be still more unwilling to be supposed to ridicule. Let us briefly say, then, that the ceremony was performed by the old clergyman in the parish church of Dingley Dell, and that Mr. Pickwick's name is attached to the register still preserved in the vestry thereof, that the young lady with the black eyes signed her name in a very unsteady and tremulous manner, that Emily's signature, as the other bridesmaid, is nearly illegible, that it all went off in a very admirable style, that the young ladies generally thought it far less shocking than they had expected, and that although the owner of the black eyes and the arch smile informed Mr. Wardle that she was sure she could never submit to anything so dreadful, we have the very best reasons for thinking she was mistaken. To all this we may add that Mr. Pickwick was the first who saluted the bride, and that in so doing he threw over her neck a rich gold watch and chain which no mortal eyes but the jewellers had ever beheld before. Then the old church bell rang as gaily as it could, and they all returned to breakfast. "'Fair does the mince-pies go, young opium-eater,' said Mr. Weller to the fat boy, as he assisted in laying out such articles of consumption as had not been duly arranged on the previous night. The fat boy pointed to the destination of the pies. "'Wery good,' said Sam. 
stick a bit o' Christmas in em, t'other dish opposite. There, now we look compact and comfortable, as the farmer said when he cut his little boy's head off to cure him of squinting. As Mr. Weller made the comparison, he fell back a step or two to give full effect to it, and surveyed the preparations with the utmost satisfaction. Wardle, said Mr. Pickwick, almost as soon as they were all seated, a glass of wine in honour of this happy occasion. I shall be delighted, my boy, said Wardle. Joel, damn that boy, he's gone to sleep. No, I ain't, sir, replied the fat boy, starting up from a remote corner where, like the patron saint of fat boys, the immortal Horner, he had been devouring a Christmas pie though not with the coolness and deliberation which characterised that young gentleman's proceedings. "'Fill Mr. Pickwick's glass.' "'Yes, sir.' The fat boy filled Mr. Pickwick's glass, and then retired behind his master's chair, from whence he watched the play of the knives and forks, and the progress of the choice morsels from the dishes to the mouths of the company, with a kind of dark and gloomy joy that was most impressive. "'God bless you, old fellow,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'Shame to you, my boy,' replied Wardle, and they pledged each other heartily. "'Mrs. Wardle,' said Mr. Pickwick, "'we old folk must have a glass of wine together in honour of this joyful event.' The old lady was in a state of great grandeur just then, for she was sitting at the top of the table in the brocaded gown, with her newly married granddaughter on one side, and Mr. Pickwick on the other, to do the carving. Mr. Pickwick had not spoken in a very loud voice, but she understood him at once, and drank off a full glass of wine to his long life and happiness, after which the worthy old soul launched forth into a minute and particular account of her own wedding, with a dissertation on the fashion of wearing high-heeled shoes, and some particulars concerning the life and adventures of the beautiful Lady Tollim Glower, deceased. At all of which the old lady herself laughed very heartily indeed, and so did the young ladies too, for they were wondering amongst themselves what on earth Grandma was talking about. When they laughed, the old lady laughed ten times more heartily, and said that these always had been considered capital stories, which caused them all to laugh again, and put the old lady into the very best of humours. Then the cake was cut and passed round the ring, the young ladies saved pieces to put under their pillows to dream of their future husbands on, and a great deal of blushing and merriment was thereby occasioned. Mr. Miller said Mr. Pickwick to his old acquaintance, the hard-headed gentleman. "'A glass of wine?' "'With great satisfaction, Mr. Pickwick,' replied the hard-headed gentleman solemnly. "'You'll take me in?' said the benevolent old clergyman. "'And me,' interposed his wife. "'And me, and me!' said a couple of poor relations at the bottom of the table, who had eaten and drunk very heartily and laughed at everything. Mr. Pickwick expressed his heartfelt desire at every additional suggestion, and his eyes beamed with hilarity and cheerfulness. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' 
said Mr. Pickwick, suddenly rising. "'Ear, ear, 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 ear!' cried Mr. Weller, in the excitement of his feelings. "'Call in all the servants!' cried old Wardle, interposing to prevent the public rebuke which Mr. Weller would otherwise most indutiably have received from his master. "'Give them a glass of wine each to drink the toast in. Now, Pickwick!' Amidst the silence of the company, the whispering of the woman-servants, and the awkward embarrassment of the men, Mr. Pickwick proceeded. "'Ladies and gentlemen—no, I won't say ladies and gentlemen—I'll call you my friends, my dear friends, if the ladies will allow me to take so great a liberty.' Here Mr. Pickwick was interrupted by immense applause from the ladies, echoed by the gentlemen, during which the owner of the eyes was distinctly heard to state that she could kiss the dear Mr. Pickwick, whereupon Mr. Winkle gallantly inquired if it couldn't be done by deputy, to which the young lady with the black eyes replied, "'Go away!' and occupied the request with a look which said as plainly as a look could, if you can. My dear friends, resumed Mr. Pickwick, I am going to propose the health of the bride and bridegroom. God bless em! Cheers and tears. My young friend Trundle, I believe to be a very excellent and manly fellow, and his wife, I know to be a very amiable and lovely girl, well qualified to transfer to another sphere of action the happiness which for twenty years she has diffused around her in her father's house. Here the fat boy burst forth into stentorian blubberings, and was led forth by the coat-collar by Mr. Weller. "'I wish,' added Mr. Pickwick, I wish I was young enough to be her sister's husband. Cheers! But failing that, I am happy to be old enough to be her father. For being so, I shall not be suspected of any latent designs when I say that I admire, esteem, and love them both. Cheers and sobs. The bride's father, our good friend there, is a noble person, and I am proud to know him. Great uproar. He is a kind, excellent, independent-spirited, fine-hearted, hospitable, liberal man. Enthusiastic shouts from the poor relations, at all the adjectives, and especially at the two last that his daughter may enjoy all the happiness even he can desire, and that he may derive from the contemplation of her felicity all the gratification of heart and peace of mind which he so well deserves is, I am persuaded, our united wish. So, let us drink their healths, and wish them prolonged life, and every blessing. Mr. Pickwick concluded amidst a whirlwind of applause, and once more were the lungs of the supernumeraries under Mr. Weller's command brought into active and effective operation. 
Mr. Wardle proposed Mr. Pickwick. Mr. Pickwick proposed the old lady. Mr. Snodgrass proposed Mr. Wardle. Mr. Wardle proposed Mr. Snodgrass. One of the poor relations proposed Mr. Tupman, and the other poor relation proposed Mr. Winkle. All was happiness and festivity, until the mysterious disappearance of both the poor relations beneath the table warned the party that it was time to adjourn. At dinner they met again, after a five-and-twenty-mile walk, undertaken by the males at Wardle's recommendation to get rid of the effects of the wine at breakfast. The poor relations had kept in bed all day, with the view to attaining the same happy consummation, but as they had been unsuccessful, they stopped there. Mr. Weller kept the domestics in a state of perpetual hilarity, and the fat boy divided his time into small alternate allotments of eating and sleeping. The dinner was as hearty an affair as the breakfast, and was quite as noisy without the tears. Then came the dessert and some more toasts. Then came the tea and coffee, and then the ball. The best sitting-room at Manor Farm was a good, long, dark-panelled room with a high chimney-piece and a capacious chimney, up which you could have driven one of the new patent cabs, wheels and all. At the upper end of the room, seated in a shady bower of holly and evergreens, were the two best fiddlers and the only harp in all Muggleton. In all sorts of recesses and on all kinds of brackets stood massive old silver candlesticks with four branches each. Carpet was up, the candles burned bright, the fire blazed and crackled on the hearth, and merry voices and light-hearted laughter rang through the room. If any of the old English yeomen had turned into fairies when they died, it was just the place in which they would have held their revels. If anything could have added to the interest of this agreeable scene, it would have been the remarkable fact of Mr. Pickwick's appearing without his gaiters, for the first time within the memory of his oldest friends. "'You mean to dance?' said Wardle. "'Of course I do,' replied Mr. Pickwick. "'Don't you see I am dressed for the purpose?' Mr. Pickwick called attention to his speckled silk stockings and smartly tied pumps. "'You! In silk stockings!' exclaimed Mr. Tupman jocosely. "'And why not, sir, why not?' said Mr. Pickwick, turning warmly upon him. "'Oh, of course, there is no reason why you shouldn't wear them,' responded Mr. Tupman. "'I imagine not, sir. I imagine not,' said Mr. Pickwick, in a very peremptory tone. Mr. Tupman had contemplated a laugh, but he found it was a serious matter, so he looked grave, and said they were a pretty pattern. "'I hope they are.' said Mr. Pickwick, fixing his eyes upon his friend. "'You see nothing extraordinary in the stockings, as stockings, I trust, sir?' Oh, "'Certainly not, oh, certainly not,' replied Mr. Tupman. 
He walked away, and Mr. Pickwick's countenance resumed its customary benign expression. "'We are all ready, I believe,' said Mr. Pickwick, who was stationed with the old lady at the top of the dance, and had already made four full starts in his excessive anxiety to commence. "'Then begin at once,' said Wardle. "'No!' Up struck the two fiddles and the one harp, and off went Mr. Pickwick into hands across, when there was a general clapping of hands and a cry of, "'Stop! Stop!' "'What's the matter?' said Mr. Pickwick, who was only brought to by the fiddles and harp desisting, and could have been stopped by no other earthly power, if the house had been on fire. "'Where's Arabella Allen?' cried a dozen voices. "'And Winkle?' added Mr. Tupman. "'Here we are!' exclaimed that gentleman, emerging with his pretty companion from the corner. As he did so, it would have been hard to tell which was the redder in the face, he or the young lady with the black eyes. "'What an extraordinary thing it is, Winkle,' said Mr. Pickwick, rather pettishly, "'that you couldn't have taken your place before.' "'Not at all extraordinary,' said Mr. Winkle. "'Well,' said Mr. Pickwick, with a very expressive smile, as his eyes rested on Arabella, "'Well, I don't know that it was extraordinary either, after all.' However, there was no time to think more about the matter, for the fiddles and harp began in real earnest. Away went Mr. Pickwick, hands across, down the middle to the very end of the room, and halfway up the chimney, back again to the door, poussette everywhere, loud stamp on the floor, ready for the next couple. Off again, all the figure over once more, another stamp to beat out the time, next couple, and the next, and the next again. Never was such going. At last, after they had reached the bottom of the dance, and full fourteen couple after the old lady had retired in an exhausted state, and the clergyman's wife had been substituted in her stead, did that gentleman, when there was no demand whatever on his exertions, keep perpetually dancing in his place to keep time to the music, smiling on his partner all the while with a blandness of demeanour which baffles all description. Long before Mr. Pickwick was weary of dancing, the newly married couple had retired from the scene. There was a glorious supper downstairs notwithstanding, and a good long sitting after it. And when Mr. Pickwick awoke late the next morning, he had a confused recollection of having, severally and confidentially, invited somewhere about five-and-forty people to dine with him at the Georgian Vulture the very first time they came to London, which Mr. Pickwick rightly considered a pretty certain indication of his having taken something besides exercise on the previous night. "'And so your family has games in the kitchen to-night, my dear, has they?' inquired Sam of Emma. "'Yes, Mr. Weller,' replied Emma. "'We always have on Christmas Eve. Master wouldn't neglect to keep it up on any account.' "'Your master's a very pretty notion of keeping anything up, my dear,' said Mr. Weller. "'I never see such a sensible sort of man as he is, or such a regular gentleman.' 
"'Oh, that he is,' said the fat boy, joining in the conversation. "'Don't he breed nice pork?' The fat youth gave a semi-cannibalic leer at Mr. Weller, as he thought of the roast legs and gravy. "'Oh, you've woke up at last, have you?' said Sam. The fat boy nodded. "'I'll tell you what it is, young boar constrictor,' said Mr. Weller impressively. "'If you don't sleep a little less and exercise a little more when you comes to be a man, you'll lay yourself open to the same sort of personal inconvenience as was inflicted on the old gentleman as wore the pigtail.' "'What did they do to him?' inquired the fat boy, in a faltering voice. "'I'm a-going to tell you,' replied Mr. Weller. "'He was one of the largest patterns as was ever turned out. Regular fat man, as hadn't caught a glimpse of his own shoes for five-and-forty year.' "'Law!' exclaimed Emma. "'No, that he hadn't, my dear,' said Mr. Weller. "'And if you'd put an exact model of his own legs on the dining-table afore him, he wouldn't a known em. Well, he always walks to his office with a wery handsome gold watch hanging out about a foot and a quarter, and a gold watch in his fob as was worth, I'm afraid to say how much, but as much as a watch can be, a large, heavy, round manufacturer, stout for a watch as he was for a man, and with a big face in proportion. You'd better not carry that ere watch, says the old gentleman's friends. You'll be robbed on it, says they. "'Shall I?' says he. "'Yes, you will,' says they. "'Well,' says he, "'I should like to see the thief as could get this ere watch out, "'for I'm blessed if I ever can. "'It's such a tight fit,' says he. "'And whenever I wants to know what's a clock, "'I'm obliged to stare into the baker's shops,' he says. "'Well, then he laughs as hearty as if he was a-going to pieces, "'and out he walks again with his powdered head and pigtail, "'and strolls down the strand with the chain hanging out further than ever.' and the great round watch almost busting through his grey cursy smalls. There weren't a pickpocket in all London as didn't take a pull at that chain, but the chain had never break, and the watch had never come out. So they soon got tired of dragging such an heavy old gentleman along the pavement, and he'd go home and laugh till the pigtail vibrated like the pendulum of a Dutch clock. At last, one day, the old gentleman was a-rolling along, and he sees a pickpocket, as he knowed by sight, a-coming up arm-in-arm arm with a little boy with a wery large head. "'Here's a game,' says the old gentleman to himself. "'They're a-going to have another try, but it won't do.' So he begins a-chuckling wery hearty, when, all of a sudden, the little boy leaves hold of the pickpocket's arm, and rushes head foremost straight into the old gentleman's stomach and for a moment doubles him right up with the pain. Murder, says the old gentleman. All right, sir, says the pickpocket, a whispering in his ear. And when he comes straight again, the watch and chain was gone. And what's worse than that, the old gentleman's digestion was all wrong ever afterwards to the very last day of his life. So just you look about you, young feller, and take care you don't get too fat. As Mr. Weller concluded this moral tale, with which the fat boy appeared much affected, they all three repaired to the large kitchen in which the family were by this time assembled, according to ancient custom on Christmas Eve, observed by old Wardle's forefathers from time immemorial.
From the centre of the ceiling of this kitchen old Wardle had just suspended, with his own hands, a huge branch of mistletoe, and this same branch of mistletoe instantaneously gave rise to a scene of general and most delightful struggling and confusion, in the midst of which Mr. Pickwick, with a gallantry that would have done honour to a descendant of Lady Tominglower herself, took the old lady by the hand, led her beneath the mystic branch, and saluted her in all courtesy and decorum. The old lady submitted to this piece of practical politeness with all the dignity which befitted so important and serious a solemnity. But the younger ladies, not being so thoroughly imbued with a superstitious veneration for the custom, or imagining that the value of a salute is very much enhanced, if it cost a little trouble to obtain it, screamed and struggled and ran into corners, and threatened and remonstrated, and did everything but leave the room, until some of the less adventurous gentlemen were on the point of desisting, when they all at once found it useless to resist any longer, and submitted to be kissed with a good grace. Mr. Winkle kissed the young lady with the black eyes, and Mr. Snodgrass kissed Emily, and Mr. Weller, not being particular about the form of being under the mistletoe, kissed Emma and the other female servants just as he caught them. As to the poor relations, they kissed everybody, not even excepting the plainer portions of the young lady's visitors, who in their excessive confusion ran right under the mistletoe as soon as was hung up, without knowing it. Wardle stood with his back to the fire, surveying the whole scene with the utmost satisfaction, and the fat boy took the opportunity of appropriating to his own use, and summarily devouring a particularly fine mince-pie that had carefully been put by for somebody else. Now the screaming had subsisted, and faces were in a glow, and curls in a tangle, and Mr. Pickwick, after kissing the old lady as before mentioned, was standing under the mistletoe, looking with a very pleased countenance on all that was passing around him, when the young lady with the black eyes, after a little whispering with the other young ladies, made a sudden dart forward and putting her arm round Mr. Pickwick's neck, saluted him affectionately on the left cheek. And before Mr. Pickwick distinctly knew what was the matter, he was surrounded by the whole body, and kissed by every one of them. It was a pleasant thing to see Mr. Pickwick in the centre of the group, now pulled this way and then that, and first kissed on the chin and then on the nose, and then on the spectacles, and to hear the peals of laughter which were raised on every side. But it was a still more pleasing thing to see Mr. Pickwick, blinded shortly afterwards with a silk handkerchief, falling up against the wall and scrambling into corners, and going through all the mysteries of blind man's buff, with the utmost relish for the game. Until, at last, he caught one of the poor relations, and then had to evade the blind man himself, which he did with a nimbleness and agility that elicited the admiration and applause of all beholders. The poor relations caught the people who they thought would like it, and when the game flagged, got caught themselves. When they all tired of blind man's buff, 
there was a great game at snapdragon and when fingers enough were burned with that and all the raisins were gone they sat down by the huge fire of blazing logs to a substantial supper and a mighty bowl of wassail something smaller than an ordinary wash-house copper in which the hot apples were hissing and bubbling with a rich look and a jolly sound that were perfectly irresistible this said mr pickwick looking around him this is indeed comfort our invariable custom replied mr wardle everybody sits down with us on christmas eve as you see them now servants and all and here we wait till the clock strikes twelve to usher christmas in and beguile the time with forfeits and old stories trundle my boy rake up the fire up flew the bright sparks in myriads as the logs were stirred the deep red blaze sent forth a rich glow that penetrated into the farthest corner of the room and cast its cheerful tint on every face come said wardle a song a christmas song i'll give you one in default of a better bravo said mr pickwick philip said wardle it will be two hours good before you see the bottom of the bowl through the deep rich colour of the wassail fill up all round and now for the song thus saying the merry old gentleman in a good round sturdy voice commenced without more ado a christmas carol i care not for spring on his fickle wing let the blossoms and buds be born he woos them amain with his treacherous rain and he scatters them ere the morn an inconstant elf he knows not himself nor his own changing mind an hour he'll smile in your face and with wry grimace he'll wither your youngest flower let the summer sun to his bright home run he shall never be sought by me when he's dimmed by a cloud i can laugh aloud and care not how sulky he be for his darling child is the madness wild that sports in fierce fever's train and when love is too strong it don't last long as many have found to their pain a mild harvest night by the tranquil light of the modest and gentle moon has a far sweet a sheen for me i ween than the broad and unblushing noon but every leaf awakens my grief as it lieth beneath the tree so let autumn air be never so fair it by no means agrees with me but my song i trowel out for christmas stout the hearty the true and the bold a bumper i drain and with might and main give three cheers for this christmas old we'll usher him in with a merry din that shall gladden his joyous heart and we'll keep him up 
while there's bite or sup, and in fellowship good we'll part. In his fine honest pride he scorns to hide one jot of his hard-weather scars. There no disgrace, for there's much the same trace on the cheeks of our bravest tars. Then again I sing till the roof doth ring, and it echoes from wall to wall. To the stout old white, fair welcome to night, as the king of the seasons all. This song was tumultuously applauded, for friends and dependents make a capital audience, and the poor relations especially were in perfect ecstasies of rapture. Again was the fire replenished, and again went the wassail round. "'How it snows!' said one of the men in a low tone. "'Snows, does it?' said Wardle. "'Rough, cold night, sir,' replied the man. "'and there's a wind got up that drifts it across the fields in a thick white cloud.' "'What does Jem say?' inquired the old lady. "'There ain't anything the matter, is there?' "'No, no, mother,' replied Wardle. "'He says there's a snowdrift and a wind that's piercing cold. "'I should know that by the way it rumbles in the chimney.' "'Arr,' said the old lady, there was just such a wind, and just such a fall of snow a good many years back. I recollect, just five years before your poor father died. It was a Christmas Eve, too, and I remember that on that very night he told us the story about the goblins that carried away old Gabriel Grubb. The story about what? said Mr. Pickwick. "'Oh, nothing, nothing,' replied Wardle, "'about an old sexton that the good people down here "'supposed to have been carried away by goblins.' "'Suppose,' ejaculated the old lady, "'is there anybody hardy enough to disbelieve it? "'Suppose, haven't you heard ever since you were a child "'that he was carried away by the goblins?' "'And don't you know he was?' "'Very well, mother, he was, if you like,' said Wardle, laughing. "'He was carried away by the goblins, Pickwick, and there's an end of the matter.' "'No, no,' said Mr. Pickwick, "'not an end of it, I assure you, for I must hear how and why and all about it.' Wardle smiled as every head was bent forward to hear. And filling out the wassail with no stinted hand, nodded a health to Mr. Pickwick, and began as follows. But, bless our editorial heart, what a long chapter we have been betrayed into! We had quite forgotten all such petty restrictions as chapters we solemnly declare. So here goes to give the goblin a fair start in a new one. A clear stage, and no favour for the goblins, ladies and gentlemen, if you please. And that is the end of chapter 28. Recording by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England. 
on the 7th of April 2007 www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk